This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. On today's show, Molly McGee on her debut novel, Jonathan Abernathy, You Are Kind. Molly McGee completed her MFA in fiction at Columbia University, where in addition to receiving a Chairs Fellowship, she taught in the undergraduate creative writing department. She has worked in the editorial departments of McSweeney's, The Believer, Noon, and Farrah, Strauss and Giro, and currently living in Brooklyn, her work has appeared in the Paris Review. Today we're here to talk about Molly's debut novel, which is Jonathan Abernathy, You Are Kind. Molly, welcome to Little Atoms. Oh, thank you for having me. Hello, hello. First of all, then, can you tell us how you would describe this novel? A gut punch that makes you laugh and cry just a little bit. <laughs> is that a good description or should I say actually? What that is a perfect description of it. But yeah, give us a bit. <laughs> yeah, I'll give you a bit. OK, fine. You can pull me out. Um, It's about a guy who is he's hey, you know, he's a little bit of a loser. But he is the type of loser we all have in our lives. We love him. He means well. And he is super behind in life and in debt. And he gets an offer to join a company that he thinks is going to change his life. But once he gets there, he realizes uh, he has to go into the dreams of other people and remove the things that are causing them distress and anxiety. As you can imagine, that does not go very well for him. Now, I would normally now say, um, tell us something about who Jonathan Abernathy is, um, who the character is when we first meet him. But I'm not going to do that. I want to say to you, tell us who Jonathan Abernathy thinks he is, because Mm. he is full of self-delusion, this man. He is. And you know what? Who among us isn't? Um, He thinks he is the sweetest, nicest guy. He thinks he's a pillar in his community. Um, He thinks that he is an incredibly hard worker who always makes the best decisions for him and everyone around him. Now, we know that's not possible. And this book is about his journey to come to terms with that. And that brings us to the title. So the, the title is one of these sort of affirmations that Jonathan Abernathy tells to himself. Um, so he's not actually kind. But he wants to be desperately. He desperately wants to be. Throughout the book, there are a series of affirmations that he tells to himself when he's at his lowest moments. And the thing is, even though he thinks he's all of those things that are great, he has a sneaking suspicion that he might be the worst of them all. Uh, And this book is sort of a darkly comic balancing act between thinking you're the worst person in the world and thinking you're the best. And so you mentioned why he was in trouble. He's in a lot of debt. But tell us something about this sort of, I mean, I guess the real life US world of debt, which could be, you know, student loans or medical debt. Mm, Um, mm -hmm. This thing that you talk about that Jonathan has, which is a a lien or a lien. I'm not sure how you pronounce it. We do have a similar thing here, but it's. I do think you have to agree to it in the UK. It's not something that... You can't just randomly have money taken from from your account. So just tell us, yeah, something about the world of debt that he inhabits. Wow, what's it like to live in another country? It sounds fascinating. In America, as many of your viewers are probably aware, 
man, our government, we love them, but they love to set up ways to get money out of you. Um, here we have to pay for school. We have to pay for healthcare costs. Um, things add up really quickly. And if you can't, there are really predatory interest loans attached to them. So say you take out $10,000 with an APR, that's annual rate per year of 6.9 when you're 18. Now, if you can't afford to make those payments, that interest really adds up over time. And in the case of Jonathan, he goes to college, but he doesn't finish. And he still has to pay down uh, the costs of the school, even though he hasn't got a degree. On top of that, as if things couldn't get any worse, he inherits, quote unquote, um, some debt from his parents. Now, what do I mean inherit? I mean, he is legally tied to them. And so his information is available to debt collectors and the general public. And throughout the novel, he receives sort of calls to pay down his parents' debt, even though technically by law, he's not on the line, but the harassment still continues because there's um, no protections from debt collection in America. So the job which he is offered, which can go some way to get him out of this hole that he finds himself in, without giving too much away, because, you know, as one of the sort of joys of the book is, is discovering where this goes and, and what happens. But I guess when you were like first coming up with the idea for this job, how did you sort of envisage it working? Okay, no spoilers. Well, the job, you know, when I came up with the idea for this book, I had the idea through a series of intense anxiety dreams. And in my dreams, Jonathan was a guy, and now in this book, who sort of uh, shows up to work and he realizes that he has to give away his sleeping hours so that they become working hours. So while he's sleeping, instead of dreaming his own dreams, he consents to go and have the dreams of other people. So what that entails is he finds himself in some really, truly absurdist, surreal, and deeply personal situations that are very unreadable to him. Dreams are such a personal form of expression, and they need so much context to symbolically make sense that part of the book is about the, how do I want to put this, about the grandiosity of someone who thinks they know what another person's internal state could be, and the ways we harm each other when we assume facts about each other's lives. Well, then let's talk about the, um, the the grandiosity of assuming we know what other people's inner lives might be like. How did you come up with some of the ideas for the dream? <laughs> uh, Neil, I'm sure you have a lot of people in your life who roll up and tell you what you're feeling and what you're thinking. I think that is a really common experience. Um, and we do that, you know, not only is it a common experience to be on the receiving end, but it's a common experience for us to do that, even to people we love. I think of, you know, the well-meaning parent who's like, oh, if you just did this, you would be able to do this like I would have done. But the truth of the matter is that all of us live such radically different existences that we can't always have any context for 
how each of us moves through the world and how we conceive of the world. So to me, the idea of perception and perspective was something really important that I wanted to explore in the text. And I used throughout the book time as my main avenue to sort of look at how not only do things change as we gain more information about them, but they also change as we get further away from them. Sometimes when something is the least understandable is when we are in the middle of it. What are you trying to say about the actual real world of work in the book here? Because I was most struck by the idea that, you know, obviously, you know, there are things that a company could do to to make your working conditions better, pay you more, let you work less hours. But one of the things that they've done recently is introduce ideas of well-being at work. Mm. So, you know, maybe you could take five minutes away from your desk to meditate for a moment within Mm. the 12 hours a day that you're actually working. Mm. Uh, I think in the contemporary workplace, what has been, at least in America, what has been eroded is trust. Trust that the job is getting done. Trust that you've hired the right person to do the work. And trust that they're doing it in the best way they can. Now, I don't know about, you know, company-sponsored wellness. I never necessarily got on board with that. But what I do think is sort of at the crux of the problem we find ourselves in over here is the fact that people can't make ends meet on their salaries. And so they are not delivering the type of work a healthy, unstressed person would deliver. Stress absolutely deteriorates our level of ability to create. And so when we have these jobs, if we're highly stressed out, we are not going to do them at peak operation. And that's going to look like systematic failure on a large scale as more employees reach stress levels that are unsustainable. So even though you have folks at the top who are making quite a bit of money, it's your folks at the bottom who are sort of your power horses, right? They're the people who are interfacing with the public. They are the people who are making really executive decisions that will change how a community experiences and thinks about your business. And the lack of respect that some workers get when they're just starting in their career or if um, they haven't climbed to the executive suite, it just, it's not right. And it makes it makes company, a workplace situation incredibly uneven and it's not the best way to get things done i'm reminded of there's a section in the book where jonathan's doing a um a training session before he starts the job and he notices that one of his colleagues has written endangered workers or endangered labor on a notepad um and like you know the, the picture you just painted of like you know people that can't make ends meet and they're working maybe working multiple jobs and traveling long distances to get to them and while these people are obviously being paid, there is no agency. If you cannot make the decision of whether or not you, you know, if you can't have any choice in where you work and what you work at, that in itself is a scandal, I think. Absolutely. And I mean, I'll just say it. The greed is killing our society. 
I just was chatting with a friend who got laid off. And two weeks after she was laid off, her entire company closed. The reason her company closed was because there was a high-level accountant who was lying daily and saying he was doing the work, but he actually had two or three jobs that he was holding down, pulling in six figures, seven figures. And by the time the founders of the company realized this, it was too late. And 75 people ended up losing their jobs because this guy hadn't been taking care of the books. I think there are a lot of situations where the individual growth, wealth is really put over the health of the community and at great personal risk to the individual in question because there's really nothing here in life unless you're part of community. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Listed to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Molly McGee and we're talking about her debut novel, Jonathan Abernathy, You Are Kind. And Molly, let's talk about a couple of other characters from the novel. So when Jonathan first starts his job, his supervisor is a woman called Kai. Tell us something about who mm. she is. She is a woman who had a very rough adolescence and her decisions in adolescence led her towards incarceration. Through her incarceration, she's offered this opportunity where she has to go into the dreams of other people. Now, the book is very deliberately told from 
Jonathan's perspective, but throughout the work, we get momentary access to what Jonathan imagines Kai's interior life could be like. And there are moments in the text where we realize that his assumptions about her are actually the things that cause his later misfortune. Um, I would say, I would describe her as, what's the word that I want to use? I want to use a Southern, I'm from the Southern United States and I want to use an accurate, like a saying, um, which is she takes no shit. So (laughs) she's really not out here to play. She's lived a hard life. She's out here trying to get her paycheck, earn her freedom. And then she ends up having to mentor this sweet, optimistic, totally idiotic 20-something-year-old kid. Uh, And the dynamic between them is something that I find quite rewarding. You just mentioned the, um, the book is told from Jonathan's perspective. It's a third person narration. And I really love the voice. I wanted to talk to you about the narrative voice, because as you've just described, the voice sort of digresses. It will talk about Jonathan, Mm. but then it will basically say, oh, here's some stuff that Jonathan doesn't know, basically. Mm -hmm, Or this is what mm -hmm. he thinks, but actually he's wrong about this. Uh, Tell us about creating that voice. It's really wonderful. Oh, thank you so much. Um, You know, this is actually quite funny. When I was growing up, I read a lot of authors from your side of the pond. Two of my favorites, even though I don't think my book is anything like their work, but they were very influential to me when I was growing up, was uh, Douglas Adams and Terry Pratchett. Now, I'm not funny like they are, but I loved the moments where they took extreme authorial liberty to sort of tell the reader what's going on uh, outside of the silo of individual perspective. And I was thinking a lot of sort of the 18th century, um, no, 19th century sort of Victorian and older novels, especially the novels on social commentary, like Thackeray's Vanity Fair, where we have a narrator who not only has their own motivations, but is a little bit cheeky about their thoughts. One other character that I want to talk about then is um, Rhoda, who is Jonathan's neighbor. Tell us something about who she is. Mm. Rhoda is a little bit of a tragic figure, isn't she? She has a daughter. She is Jonathan's next door neighbor. And throughout the book, she is going through a pretty hard time on her own. But she is a little bit more of a stoic character. Emotional expression doesn't come naturally to her. And she's spread a bit thin in terms of she works at a bank and she has a daughter uh, from a previous marriage and her sort of divorce with her ex-husband isn't going so well. All of this becomes apparent to the reader, but not necessarily Jonathan, who continues to make decisions around um, his relationship with her without necessarily considering what her perspective of their relationship might be. What on earth does she see in him? What does she see in him? Um, You know, I think, I don't know what it's like over there, but here in America, in the outer cities, it can get quite lonely. We are very isolated from one another. Everything is done by cars. Um, You sit in traffic 
by yourself for long stretches of time. And when you're a mother, especially a single mother, you are, I don't want to say intentionally segregated from society, but you don't have a lot of opportunities to connect with people. And a lot of the people you do connect with don't necessarily see you as a person first. They see you as a mother first. And I think one of the appeals of Jonathan is when Rhoda first gets to know him, he really treats her like a person. He treats her like a a human being rather than a mother. And I think for a lot of people, that is a really intoxicating idea. I worked for a long time doing some freelance work for a website that catered to giving advice to expecting mothers. And the type of notes that I would receive and help craft a response to really, really deeply affected me and sort of shone a light on how isolated and and lonely um, motherhood can be, uh, which I think the pandemic sort of has shown a spotlight on as well. So when I was writing the text, I was really, really thinking about all the women in the world who were trapped in their houses with just their kids for company and how unstimulating that can be. Fulfilling, absolutely. But when you're an adult, you need to have adult conversation. And it's so, there's something sad about meeting someone who you think you can have a deeper connection with. And then you realize, uh, actually, they're not on the same level yet. They haven't gone through the same life experiences and they don't have the same possibility of depth. It is interesting that that you said that, you know, he sees her as a as a human being first and a and a mother second, but like he is he's useless at relationships. His relationship he is with, so bad at it. <laughs> with his Rhoda is bad. His relationship with Kai is bad and his other co-workers is bad. Why is Jonathan so terrible at relationships with other people? I think it's because he hasn't learned personal responsibility yet. The only relationship that he has that's any good really is his relationship with Rhoda's daughter, Timmy. And she is, you know, between the ages of nine and 13 throughout the text. He can really, you know, he's not necessarily emotionally mature. And the book itself is about his desperation for emotional maturity, but also his lack of tools to find it and to be able to sort of start that journey and search for himself. And just before we finish a couple more things around the the job in the book and or just work in general, because the book also talks about the sort of the idea of success. Um, mm. Jonathan's idea of success and what he should be pursuing, what will make him feel a success and how in doing that he might miss other things along the way. Mm. Well, I think success when we're young can be such an enticing carrot, right? We think, oh, if we can just have this thing or reach this pinnacle of our career, we'll find fulfillment, self-actualization, meaning, etc. But as you get older, I think a natural part of aging is realizing actually the core components of life are the relationships you have with other people and the way you spend your time on this planet. And you get to a certain point where you realize, hey, actually, life is quite short. 
it's very long and it's very short. And both are true at the same time. Once we start losing our loved ones, we sort of are able to conceptualize that more concretely. And it can create a type of panic. And so I think it's natural to look for a way out of that panic through work, through drugs, through drinking. It's a very natural human experience, but it takes incredible bravery to realize actually there is no way out of that hopelessness. And the only thing you can do is embrace it and find hope in other people and what you can do for them. And so then to finish it off, can I get you to read us a bit? Yes, absolutely. I'm going to read the opening pages, chapter one. Jonathan Abernathy steps into the office and death is there. Death is not alone. A redheaded attendant named Kai looks up from her paperwork as Jonathan Abernathy walks through the automatic doors. Neither Abernathy nor the attendant feels death, sees death, hears or touches death, but death is there. Death is watching them both. Though it will take three years from this moment for death to act, Jonathan Abernathy will never live a life unmarked again. Death will be tethered to him as a shadow. His will not be a good death. When he dies, it will be slow. The poor dumb son of a bitch is, of course, oblivious to this. This oblivion makes him human. He's sweeter for it. Except for Jonathan Abernathy and Kai, the attendant. The empty office is located in a strip mall just off the highway. The only signage is a weather-beaten brass plaque that reads, The 508th Archival Office, Full Service and Records. A piece of white printer paper is taped to the bottom of the plaque. Inquire for employment opportunities within. The interior of Office 508 is no more specific than the exterior. The waiting room is Abernathy's spiritual cousin. Chairs of vinyl, cluttered secretarial space, carpet that's almost as downtrodden as he. There's a damp aura. It's the type of room a government official leads you into to execute you financially. In such rooms, there are always contracts to sign, ballpoint pens. With the tips of his fingers, Abernathy can reach above him and pop any of the styrofoam ceiling tiles out of place, as if the visual similarities between Archival Office 508 and the purgatories of our modern world, IRS rooms, liminal spaces, notary offices at large, are not glaring enough. The waiting room even has a jingle that loops. Last night, two people visited Jonathan Abernathy in his dreams and told him to come here. In this place, he could find forgiveness. Of his loans, they said, yes, but also of other things. Though Jonathan Abernathy is not usually the type of person to listen to dreams, voices, or signs from God, Today, he is desperate. Today, he has defaulted on his debt. The debt of Jonathan Abernathy is large. Myriad is loans, IOUs, and bills so diverse. Ecologists would be within their jurisdiction to classify the collection as an ecosystem. 
Despite the diversity, the two main life forms are fairly simple. One, a series of unpaid credit cards inherited after the death of his parents. And two, the legal culminations of the decisions he made as a 17-year-old kid, also known as private, American, non-subsidized student loans with an APR so lethal it can kill in a week. Jonathan Abernathy has student loan debt in the quarter million. His inherited debt is in the low six figures. Even though it is illegal to inherit debt from your deceased family members, this will not stop debtors from attempting to collect. Combined, Abernathy's debt is one of the most prosperous ecosystems in the world. Jonathan Abernathy does not make good money. What is illegal when done to some people is not illegal when done to him. He does not have the money to prove the illegality of other people's actions in the court of law. So, yes, a voice in Abernathy's dreams told him to visit this tiny, miserable office at the outskirts of the city. And he went. Crazier things have happened. In time, Jonathan Abernathy will believe himself to be in love. There's nothing crazier than that. And that's reminded me of something else I, I wanted to ask you, which was, at what point in this manuscript did you realize you never, ever wanted to type the words Jonathan and Abernathy again? Oh, from the very first page. <laughs> 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 oh, I would say that's my most said word in all my life. <laughs> <laughs> I had a gentleman actually reach out to me whose name is Jonathan Abernathy um, and he sent me this really nice email he sent me a super long email he was like it is the only time in my entire life where my name has felt special <laughs> he was like John Abernathy is such a normal name thank you for writing a book <laughs> so I've been talking to Molly McGee we've been talking about her debut novel Jonathan Abernathy you are kind which is out now in the UK from 40 state Molly thank you so much for taking the time to share it with me oh thank you this episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by Acast and published by 89up. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening.